What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the deep mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. Every Saturday, or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine. I really don't. What we got on tap for you today? Well, let's take a look. I will never go back to eyelash extensions again. This military gadget feels illegal to own. This is getting all our military uh, messages. Um, what have we got for you today? History, birth control. This is, after all, Women's History Month. And we want to celebrate women. And we want to fight like hell for their right to control their own body. Got a feature about Juan Macalreth, the leaders of the labor movement in Hawaii that sweeping sessions on the 1949 strike, continuing dedication to lives of working. Odetta is our featured artist this week. Odetta Holmes is called by Martin Luther King Jr. Queen of American folk music. Lily Okalani, last queen of Hawaii. How and why did she lose her throne? How did Hawaii get to be the 50th state, but not the 50th state? We've got labor history in two. We've got coming right up, actually, radio labor. And an essay by labor journalist Hamilton Nolan writes about the end of the warrior Met strike, major strike in the South, how the Democratic Party just turned their back on it, didn't become involved. Remember if uh, this is by Big Bill Haywood. Puts it into undeniable. All right. Odetta was born in Birmingham, Alabama, 1930. She was a singer, actress, guitarist, lyricist, civil rights activist, often referred to as the voice of the civil rights movement. Her musical repertoire consisted largely of American folk music, blues, jazz, and spiritual. 
an important figure in the American folk music revival in the 50s and 60s, influenced many of the folk revivalists of the time. Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Mavis Staples, even Janis Joplin. Magazine included her recording of Take This Hammer. Her list, list of Let's play one. Here's Odetta. Yo. 
she goes walking to the captain. Said, turn and loose her, my man. Hell is a midnight special. Shine on me. I love the midnight special. Shine. Slack your rope, slack it full while. Think see my father coming and riding many a mile. Oh, Papa, did you bring me silver? Did you bring me gold? Or did you come to see me hanging about a gallows pole? I didn't bring no silver, didn't bring no gold. Slack it for a while. Think see my mother coming and around the minimum mile. Mama, did you bring me silver? Did you bring me gold? Or did you come and see me hanging about a gallows pole? I didn't bring no silver. Couldn't get no For a while, think see my sweetheart coming and riding a million mile. Oh, Danny, did you bring me silver? Did you bring me gold? Did you come to see me hanging about a gallows pole? I brought silver, brought you gold. I brought And that was Odetta. That'll be our leaving today for Labor and Love. You're tuned, by the way, to Mutiny Radio, a genuine community arts center located right in the middle of the Mission District, 2781 21st Street. And come on down. Find your voice at Mutiny. Get to be a DJ. Bring your comedy routine. Bring your videos. Bring your artwork. It's all here at Mutiny Radio. 
Come on down. Okay, well, that was Odetta, and of course, our theme this month, the whole month, is going to be women's history. And nothing uh, more crucial to the lives of women as reproductive rights, which the Supreme Court recently has taken back for, for 40 years. Abortions were a legal part of the United States system. Have they been taken away? Now, right-wing people, the Republicans, want to take away the right of women in private now to take a pill. their bodies in that way. Bottom line is that there's not about controlling your body. It's about who's going to control the government, body. Unfortunately, question. Judges who, in many cases, were appointed by Trump, very conservative to the point of political. Okay, we'll get we'll get to that some more. Your birth control. Uh, to our radio. radio. on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, March 3rd, 2023. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, what teachers are doing to help the children of Ukraine. How corporations are making huge profits selling educational software to schools and parents. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. This is Radio Labor. In Ukraine, more than 400 children have been killed in the war. Hundreds have been injured and thousands have been traumatized. Many labor organizations have been trying their best to help. One of those organizations is the American Federation of Teachers. The AFT represents almost 2 million teachers, other educators, and other workers. It recently organized a trip to Ukraine to help schools and school children survive the war as best as possible. I talked to one of the people in the delegation to Ukraine, Sherry Obrinsky, about the trip. Ms. Obrinsky is the president of the Cleveland Teachers Union in Ohio. She is also a vice president of the AFT. I asked her about the purpose of the visit and what happened. 
back in October, our AFT president, Randy Weingarten, had taken a trip to Ukraine, specifically to Lviv, and had talked with labor leaders and city leaders there and asked them at that time what we could do as an organization to help. And one of the big asks that they had was for generators for preschools and kindergartens in the Lviv area. With the damage to the electricity infrastructure in the country and also with the continued threats and bombardments that they have in the area, these preschools and kindergartens are often without power. And, of course, that makes it very difficult for them to heat the schools, to provide hot meals, and also to light their schools, including lighting their bomb shelters. So the ask from city leaders at Lviv was for AFT to provide generators so that they could continue the education with as little disruption as possible at those preschools and kindergartens. Just a couple weeks ago, the AFT was able, along with the Ukrainian Children's Action Project and other partners from uh, our area, to go to Ukraine and deliver the first shipment of generators to preschools and kindergartens. We delivered about 20 generators, and there'll be another shipment that will be a shipment that will make sure that all of the preschools and kindergartens have a generator. The AFT has partnered with the Ukraine Children's Action Project to provide support for children traumatized by the war. Tell us about that initiative. Dr. Redliner and Karen Redliner are the founders of the Ukrainian Children's Action Project. They are really amazing people who do a lot of work in a lot of different areas, particularly around children's issues and trauma. And AFT has been working with them on the generators, but also more long-ranging around trauma and the impacts of trauma on children and how we can work together to help children through this very traumatic time, both now and when the war is finally over, how to get children back into school, back into life, and moving on into successful adulthood. So we have worked with them providing summer camps for refugee children, as I said, working on this generator project and now working on a more long-term project around how to create training for adults to help children who have experienced extreme trauma. Last year, AFT members traveled to Poland to provide on-the-ground educational support to Ukrainian and Polish students affected by the traumas of war. Can you tell us about that project? Certainly. We were lucky enough to have members from around the country who volunteered to spend about three weeks in Poland working with our Ukrainian colleagues in Poland to provide summer camp experiences both academic and also more fun experiences for Ukrainian and Polish children. Our teachers, our educators had training ahead of that camp, and then they went and lived in the area and provided just a a nice respite for these kids for about three weeks to 
again, help them with their education and some of the gaps that they may have had due to displacement from the war that's raging in their country, but also to have fun kid experiences that every kid should be able to have in the summertime. The future of education may be tied to the ever-increasing influence of big corporations trying to make profits from schools and parents teaching their children at home. To explore what this could mean, Education International produced a podcast on education technology and democratic accountability. EI is the global union which represents 30 million teachers and other educators in 172 countries. The podcast was hosted by Martin Henry, EI's research coordinator. He interviewed Neil Selwood, a professor at the Faculty of Education at Monash University, Australia. So, Neil, we've been kicking this tech ball around for a while here at EI, and um, it's with real pleasure that we talk to you about some of the knotty issues here that, that are really causing us quite a lot to grapple with around democratic accountability and education governance. So, to kick us off, when we look at the burgeoning edtech sector, what do you think are the quintessential drivers of profit and what impact does this have on both teachers and students? Yeah, thanks for that, Martin. I've been looking at this topic since 1995. So it doesn't feel like it's burgeoning. It feels like it's a kind of life sentence. I mean, EdTech has been around for a long time. The main driver, as always, is selling tech to schools and universities for profit. The main problem is that selling tech to schools and universities is not particularly profitable. So I think one of the main outcomes of this is that we get shoddy products. We get low-quality tech, low-quality systems. I remember doing interviews before in the new Labour government in the UK when they had a big push for the National Grid for Learning. We were talking to a big tech company, and he just said, schools are the easiest customers to sell to by a margin. They never question anything, and they put up with kind of substandard software because they want to pay less for it. So... That's that's my concern at the bottom end. I mean, and also that schools and universities are being sold tech that's often not very well suited to education. Uh, systems and software and devices that are developed for, for business. You know, PowerPoint is des- designed for business ordering pitches. It's not designed for kind of primary school kids being creative. So that, that to me is some of the main concerns. It's profit-driven and it's shoddy technology. It's tech designed for business and actually tech that doesn't often work as it should do. I think now you're right, we could call it burgeoning. Things have changed in the last 30-odd years that I've been around, and and the edtech market now is dominated by big tech actors. It's no longer very small, bespoke education companies. We've got the Googles and the Amazons and the Microsofts and everybody else involved. But again, I think these companies are mainly involved in education, perhaps as a loss leader. They're not making squillions of dollars from this. It might be part of a kind of total market domination, you know, we've got communities, we've got hospitals, we've got, you know, domestic consumers, we've got business, we might as well have schools as well. Back in the day, some of these companies used to talk about schools as a great place to kind of groom future consumers. You know, you get kids used to using Google Five, they'll use Google products when they're 25. And there is also an element of, you know, corporate social responsibility. It feels good to be involved in education. And, you know, lots of these companies, big tech companies do think they can make a difference and, and change the world. And the other thing that's changed and makes the market burgeoning is we do see a lot of much smaller scale chances, might be a word I'd use, I'm not sure if that translates to every every country, but kind of fly-by-night companies that see an opportunity or a niche where they can make a little bit of money around the edges. You know, Uber has dominated 
the taxi market, but perhaps we can make money by being an Uber for education. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top story section included links to coverage of Google workers organizing successes in Japan, attacks on the Yemeni journalists' unions' leaders and headquarters, and the impressive work Peru's unions are doing in organizing for a new presidential election. We also carried stories detailing the developing national scandal in the United States after a New York Times expose of the exploitation of migrant child workers in a wide range of industries. We also covered the arrests of striking steel workers in Iran and why police are harassing Turkish trade unions even as they continue to mobilize their resources and members to assist in earthquake recovery efforts. On our Working Women page, you'll find news about planned International Women's Day events for next week, organizing successes by sex workers in New Zealand, and a new report detailing the extent of workplace and societal gender inequality in Fiji. Stories appearing on our Health and Safety page in Newswire this week included the news that transgender journalists in Pakistan have been attacked and work under continuous threats of further violence. We also covered complaints by isolated Australian workers that the food provided by their employer is rotten and causing them to become ill. The situation is so bad that the workers are threatening to quit en masse. Our current photo of the week is a shot of one of thousands of wage strikes underway around the world, this one in Argentina, organized by that country's union for security workers. As the cost of living crisis continues, so do unions' organizing efforts. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here's the new Harmony Sisterhood Band with Union Made. There once was a union maid who never was afraid Of the goons and the gangs and the company pinks and the deputy sheriffs who made the raid She went to the union hall when the meeting it was called And when those company boys came round, she always stood her ground No, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union I'm 
take him to the union till the day I die. We modern union maids are also not afraid to walk the line, leave jobs behind, and we're not just the ladies' aid. We'll fight for equal pay, and we will have our say. We're workers to the same as you, and fight the union way. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union, I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. Hey! And that's it. Labor News Weekend News. You can listen to our daily newscast on Tuesday at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Ballard. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. There is a New Orleans Been on the ruin Many poor girls Look at me I had to listen to what my mama said. Been at home today. Being young, being foolish. I let my gambling. Out of an alehouse into this jail. 
is ruined. He left me. Bunches of roses over my baby
Ultimate protest song. The ultimate jazz artist. Looks like we're not going to get it. Reproductive system, reproducing songs. Okay. Little monk.
can't scare me. I'm sticking to this. Get a. Follow that one up with another protest song. Ultimate vocalism. Tune written especially for me. Strange fruit. Southern trees, they're strange. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree.
Okay, who could mistake that one? The great Billie Holiday singing strange fruit. All her heart and soul. We have to, uh, as people who listen to music, I suppose we have to put songs in different categories. Here's someone like Billie Holiday. They're really putting their heart in it. Not just a song. reach you with, in this case, the pain that they These are the kinds of things that people now are trying to tell us never happen. They don't want people to know, our young people to know, the history of race relations. song like Strange Fruit is a piece of critical race theory. And all we're saying with critical race theory is that, yes, these things happen. <clears throat> have a profound influence on our lives today. What are we going to do about it? Dr. DeSantis and many, many people, rising number of they don't oh they don't want to feel bad. They don't want to offend anybody. Corporation. Profit. Profit. People's wage wage slave. On with it. Take a little break. Monk, we'll be right back. Right up is history of birth control. Little Monk. Now a message from one of our sponsors. San Jalisco Restaurant, 20th. Como México no hay dos. Como San Jalisco, tampoco. 
For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Chiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? A birria to die for? How about your favorite American dishes? They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Venice, very heart of the mission, El Mero Mero. Come on down to San Jalisco, where the food tells you you're in Mexico. Okay, we're back. Uh, this is uh, B. The hour now. About Fifty minutes left to go. At time, I want to cover a couple of. First of all, birth control. Free of birth control. How women have taken control of their bodies their own bodies, how, what's ahead for them, the actionary group of anti-feminists, women haters, sure, you're great, beautiful, but no, we're not going to let you have that 
huge. Your life becomes forced to be made. So let's get to it. And then I want to talk about Aquan Muckleth. Women who have been involved in labor. A history of birth control. Through most of history, pregnancy and childbirth were very dangerous undertakings for women. In medieval Europe, one in three women died during their childbearing years, and one in four children did not live to see their first birthday. Even when both mother and child survived the ordeal of birth, women were not always able to provide for a child. And in most cultures, pregnancy outside of marriage was considered a great sin and often resulted in the shunning of the woman and the child, while the man got away scot-free. It is no surprise, therefore, that women throughout history have been trying a wide variety of methods to prevent conception. Some worked, but most did not, and many were dangerous and frankly disgusting. It should go without saying, don't try any of these historic birth control methods at home. A variety of contraceptive methods were recorded in ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt. Most methods involved pessaries, substances or objects that were inserted into the vagina. Mesopotamian women used small, round, smooth stones. The Cahun papyrus from 1850 BC and the Ebers papyrus from 1550 BC both described pessaries of honey, acacia leaves, and lint to block sperm. Acacia does have spermicidal qualities and is used today in contraceptive jellies, so it seems the ancient Egyptian women were onto something with that one. Less effective were the use of honey, sodium carbonite, and crocodile dung. The Bible describes the use of coitus interruptus, also known as the withdrawal method or the pull out and pray. In the book of Genesis, Onan spills his seed on the ground so as not to father a child with his deceased brother's wife, Tamar, though God killed him for it. Silphium, a species of giant fennel, was popular as a food seasoning and as an oral contraceptive in ancient Greece and the Near East. The plant only grew on a small strip of land near the coastal city of Cyrene in modern-day Libya, and all attempts to cultivate it elsewhere failed. It was reported to be highly effective and became extremely desirable, but its scarcity meant that by the first century AD it was worth its weight in silver, and eventually the plant went extinct. Because silphium no longer exists, we have no idea if it was actually as effective as the ancients claimed. Several other botanicals were used as contraceptives in ancient Greece, some taken orally, some used as pessaries. They included a sulfetida, a close relative of silphium, Queen Anne's lace, willow, date palm, pomegranate, pennyroyal, artemisia, myrrh, and rue. Several of these plants have been confirmed by modern researchers to have anti-fertility properties. Queen Anne's lace is still used today for birth control in India. However, many of these plants, including Queen Anne's lace, are also highly toxic, and ancient women had to be very careful about the dosage they used to avoid injury and even death. 
Lemon juice, or even halved lemons, have been a perennial favorite throughout most of history. The acidity offered some spermicidal protection, but again, not very comfortable. Bronze pessaries were popular among the upper-class Romans and had some effectiveness as a barrier method. Probably the most safe and effective birth control method known to the ancients was coitus interruptus. Philosopher Aristotle recommended applying cedar oil before intercourse. This may have had some effectiveness in gumming up the works, but would have been far from reliable. Hippocrates, known as the father of medicine, wrote a text called On the Nature of Women, which recommended that women who did not desire to conceive should drink copper salt dissolved in water. He claimed that this would prevent pregnancy for a year. Ancient medical writer Sornus of Ephesus later pointed out that copper salt was not only ineffective but also incredibly toxic and dangerous. He attempted to list reliable birth control methods, rejecting the use of superstitions and amulets in favor of common-sense mechanical methods, such as vaginal plugs made of wool and covered in oils or other gummy substances. The effort is appreciated, but most of his recommendations were bunk. One of his more ridiculous ideas was that women should hold their breath during sex and sneeze afterward. In the 7th century BC, Chinese physician Master Tong Suan documented coitus reservus, or sex without ejaculation, and coitus obstructus, or preventing the release of semen during intercourse. The primary goal here was to preserve a man's yang, or masculine energy, see yin-yang. Yang was thought to be reduced through engagement with the female yin via sexual intercourse. But these methods did have the added potential benefit of preventing pregnancy in women. Chinese concubines would drink a mixture of lead and mercury to prevent pregnancy. Unfortunately, the side effects of these toxic substances included sterility, brain damage, kidney failure, and even death. Glands condoms, or those that covered only the head of the penis, were used by the wealthy in China. They were made of oiled silk paper or lamb intestine. In Japan, they were made from tortoise shell or animal horn. Indian philosopher Vatsyayana, who wrote the Kama Sutra, presented various contraceptive methods, including coitus obstructus. Other methods popular in India in ancient times included a potion made of powdered palm leaf and red chalk, as well as pessaries made of honey, rock salt, ghee, or the seeds of a palasa tree. The Prophet Muhammad did not approve of contraceptive measures. However, 9th and 10th century Muslim physicians documented a few ways in which women might avoid pregnancy if it might be dangerous for their health. These included coitus interruptus as well as several pessaries using elephant dung, cabbage, pitch, and rock salt. Superstitions in Morocco suggested that stepping three times over the grave of a recently buried corpse or drinking water used to wash a corpse would prevent pregnancy. All methods of avoiding pregnancy were and still are deemed sinful and immoral by the Catholic Church. But this didn't stop women in the Middle Ages from attempting to grasp some control over their lives and trying various methods to prevent conception. As men of the Church did most of the writing in this period, the specifics of medieval birth control were usually not recorded. However, there is evidence that herbal potions were known to midwives and passed between women by word of mouth. Various recipes were thought to have the power to encourage or prevent pregnancy, and the ever-popular coitus interruptus was also recommended. 
1484, Pope Innocent VIII issued a papal bull speculating a vast network of witches throughout Europe. The text accused these sorceresses of having slain infants yet in their mother's womb and of hindering men from performing the sexual act and women from conceiving. The Malleus Maleficarum, or The Hammer of the Witches, a book which spelled out how to find and persecute sorceresses, accused these women of stealing men's penises. Of course, many local midwives and healing women were accused of being witches and of using forbidden knowledge granted to them by the devil. In the 16th and 17th centuries, some 60,000 suspected witches were put to death in Europe, and most of their knowledge was lost with them. Why you should never wash your... Exclusive breastfeeding during the first six months of a baby's life is thought to be up to 98% effective in preventing ovulation in the mother, though many women with two children very close in age will warn you against relying on this method. But for women in the past with no access to other contraceptives, this break between pregnancies could be very valuable. In medieval Europe, the wealthy began to see breastfeeding as something that was beneath them. There was also pressure on women of status to produce as many children as possible and to return to the marriage bed quickly after a delivery, especially if the first child had been a girl. Therefore, breastfeeding was outsourced to wet nurses, lower-class women who were hired to nurse and care for a wealthy woman's child. In 1490, the first outbreak of syphilis hit Europe. This dreadful sexually transmitted infection causes painful and humiliating sores and growths on the face and body, and often results in death. The threat of syphilis did have one upside, though. Men, especially those who frequented prostitutes and brothels, began to take precautions to protect themselves, and some of these methods had the added benefit of preventing pregnancy. Condoms made of linen or sheep intestine and soaked in chemical solutions were popular. In 1666, the English Birth Rate Commission blamed the recent downward trend in fertility on the wide use of condoms. This report coined the term condom, which is an anglicization of guatoni, the Italian word for glove. Legendary Venetian lover Giacomo Casanova wrote about using and reusing an assurance cap which he tied on with a blue satin ribbon. Here he is testing it for holes by inflating it. Casanova was also a fan of using lemon rinds as cervical caps. The church condemned the use of condoms as they prevented pregnancy and were thought to lead to greater promiscuity. Despite the opposition, condoms became incredibly popular in the 18th century and could be purchased in pubs, barbershops, chemists, and theaters throughout Europe and America. They were primarily used by the middle and upper class as they were rather expensive, and one condom would be reused many times, possibly with multiple partners. In 1839, Charles Goodyear discovered the process of vulcanizing rubber to make it elastic. The first rubber condoms were manufactured in 1855. They had a seam and were as thick as bicycle intertubes. In the 1860s, the American Civil War meant lots of young men moving around the country and visiting prostitutes. Rates of sexually transmitted infections skyrocketed. To fight the growing epidemic, sex education classes were introduced into public schools for the first time. 
but taught that abstinence was the only way to prevent disease. In 1873, the Comstock laws criminalized obscene and immoral materials and literature from being posted by U.S. mail, severely limiting the knowledge and availability of birth control. Many other countries passed laws impeding the manufacture and promotion of contraceptives. Moral watchdog groups considered STIs to be punishment for sexual misbehavior. The stigma against victims was so great that hospitals often refused to treat people who had syphilis. Women had to resort to using household items like Lysol and Coca-Cola as post-coital douches, which they incorrectly believed would kill sperm. Advertisements for Lysol even promoted the product as a way for women to protect their married happiness. In 1798, Thomas Malthus wrote in an essay on the principles of population that human population expanded until all resources were used up and that only two measures kept population growth in check, rising death rates due to disease, war, and starvation, and preventative measures including birth control, postponement of marriage, and celibacy. He argued that preventative measures could ensure a high standard of living for all, while also increasing economic stability. His ideas heavily influenced the burgeoning feminist movement. In the 1870s, early feminists coined the term voluntary motherhood. The Malthusian League was established to promote public education about family planning and advocate for making contraception legal. The founders, Annie Besant and Charles Bradlaugh, published in Britain a book called The Fruits of Philosophy, or The Private Companion of Young Married People, written by American doctor Charles Knowlton, which explained various methods of birth control. Besant and Bradlaugh were persecuted by the British government for spreading contraception knowledge. Their trial drew significant public interest and the sale of the book skyrocketed. By the late Victorian era, women throughout the industrialized world possessed life-changing knowledge of birth control. With the mass migration from the agrarian countryside to industrialized cities, large families were no longer needed to run a farm. Women were deciding to marry later and have fewer children. The birth rate in the UK dropped 29% between 1860 and 1880. Vulcanized rubber condoms and diaphragms were the most popular birth control methods. In the U.S., Margaret Sanger popularized the term birth control, emphasizing that women should have control over their own reproductive lives. In 1916, she opened the first contraceptive clinic in the U.S. It was shut down after only 11 days and Sanger was arrested, but her trial attracted public interest and funding for her continued fight to get women access to birth control. In 1921, Sanger founded the American Birth Control League, which later became Planned Parenthood. Her colleague across the pond, Marie Stopes, opened the first permanent contraceptive clinic with the support of the Malthusian League. They offered education and cervical caps as their primary form of birth control. Sanger, Stopes, and others did a great deal to remove the stigma of birth control and get women access to life-changing and life-saving medical care. In World War I, sexually transmitted infections among the troops was a serious problem. The German military had been issuing condoms to their soldiers for decades, providing them with significant protection in the neck-and-neck -neck conflict. In fact, the U.S. and Britain were the only countries that did not provide condoms to their soldiers. They realized that to win, they needed to loosen up their prudish practices, and by the end of the war, U.S. and British troops were also issued condoms. 
Latex rubber was invented in 1920. Latex condoms were stronger, thinner, had a shelf life of five years instead of three months, and unlike vulcanized rubber, which was manufactured with gasoline, the factories were much less likely to burst into flames. In the Roaring Twenties, condoms were sold widely in slick packages with catchy names like Sheik, Ramses, and Trojan. And soldiers returning from the war knew how to use them. German-Jewish doctor Ernst Grafenberg, after whom the G-spot is named, pioneered the intrauterine device, or IUD, in the 1920s and 30s. This device is inserted inside the uterus by a doctor and provides long-lasting birth control until it is removed. Grafenberg's work was suppressed by the Nazi regime, which considered contraception a threat to the Aryan race. He moved to America, where he and his colleagues continued to develop IUDs, which are now used by about 7% of women in the U.S. In the 1950s, scientists Gregory Pincus and John Rock, with support from the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, developed the first hormonal birth control pills. The pill became widely available in the 1960s and is now the most popular form of contraception. This effective and safer form of birth control sparked the women's liberation movement, which saw record numbers of women attending college, entering the workforce, and choosing their own paths in life. Thanks to those who have gone before us, women are now able to choose when and if they want to have children. No crocodile dung required. In honor of International Women's Day, I will be donating 20% of the ad revenue from this video to Pathfinder International. For over 60 years, Pathfinder International has been bringing life-saving contraceptive, STI prevention, and maternity health care to women in developing countries around the world. More than half of women in developing countries want to use contraceptives, but many don't have access to them and 308,000 women die each year from pregnancy-related causes. To learn more about the great work Pathfinder International is doing, click the link in the description. If you enjoyed this video, please like, subscribe, comment your thoughts, and check out my other Royal History videos. If you really want to help, please consider supporting me on Patreon. A link is in the description. Thank you for watching. There it is, uh, history of birth control. Control their own body. Always. Stigma. Using birth control. Look at having babies happy. Doesn't want to have babies. Don't want to. Not necessary. 
so harmful has not only enabled our conservatives not only does it birth control, but it's against women's health in general. Women can't own health, hold her own body. This is forced Radical Republicans are going ahead with this anti even though in the last midterm election huge number of people all over the country voted pro choice, voted for candidates who support the idea others okay I want to get on now last week we had a story labor unions in Hawaii how the movement developed Hawkeyes parents arrived in the Hawaiian Islands during the early 1800s to work on the sugar plant. Born on the island of Oahu. As a young girl, she worked on the pineapple plant. Joined the Longshore Union, ILWU, a bid to organize all the workers in the island. 1946 for 79 days and again in 1949, 157 days, workers in Hawaii went on strike and won wage increases, collective bargaining rights, sugar and shipping company. ILWU did this by assuring that all ethnicities, Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, white, Native Hawaiian, Included and represented by So let's take a look at Aquan McElrath and her life as labor organizer. Of the rampagings of a political economic system that does not care for people who sit in this room. 
This means that each one of us, each one of us individually and in groups must pressure Congress, must pressure the new president and say, we will not take this. Akwan McElrath was one of the most important leaders in Hawaii's history. Her life story is part of the heroic struggle of those who fought to gain social and economic justice for the working people of Hawaii. Akwan, fondly known as AQ, was born in 1915 to immigrant Chinese parents. The poverty of her early years formed her politics, her work ethic, her compassion, and her dedication to improving the lives of others. Despite severe financial hardship, she was able to graduate with a degree in social work from the University of Hawaii in 1938. For decades, Hawaii's economic and political life were ruled by a handful of companies known as the Big Five. These business owners worked together to exploit working class people, low wages, long hours, poor working conditions, and no representation left working families oppressed with little or no hope for the future. We were treated like slaves. White men ruled. Oh man, no, we have slave pay. The first job I had, I had only about $1.25 a day. The attitude of the sugar planters towards the various ethnic groups whom they had imported to work on the sugar plantations uh, was not all that altruistic, that they looked upon them, for example, as cattle. They looked upon them as juke bags. As a young woman, Aquan recognized that unions could provide a vehicle for social change, that by uniting and working together, people of all ethnicities could transform their lives. She joined forces with a group of strong labor activists and threw herself into union support and organizing with the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. The bigger picture was that working people deserved to take control over their lives and to have something to say about the direction of Hawaii because the message that was brought to union organization was not just an economic message. It was a political message. It was a social message based on one interracial harmony, based on one big industrial organization that organized everybody in one union without regard to job classification, without regard to religion, without regard to race or any other classification that you might want to use to separate human beings. To prevent fraternization and mutual understanding, plantation managers divided workers into ethnic camps, making it easier to pit one group against another. The union brought together all ethnic groups. We used to have speeches in Ilocano, in Visayan, in Japanese, in pure English, and in Pidgin English. That was so that everybody would understand exactly what was going on and could say what he wanted to say. It is 
the awakening, as it were, of all of the workers' feelings about themselves, their families, their jobs. And to me, this is the story of the awakening of the human spirit through a group called a union. And that's what had happened, and that's what made the union really good, united, because then all the races were united, especially after our strike in 1946, that when all the Japanese, the Portuguese, Hawaiian, and all the Philippines strike together, and we had united ourselves, and we had a good understanding after the strike is over. In her work as a social worker and educator for the ILWU, she became essential to both the rank and file and union leadership. Aquan emerged as a passionate and fearless labor leader, unafraid to challenge the establishment or the male-dominated leadership of the union. She and her colleagues became a voice for working men and women, the embodiment of the spirit of strength and determination that empowered the lives of thousands of workers on the docks, in the fields, in factories, and in hotels. I'd like to tell the young ones that if they're a worker, and as long as you don't have representation, you cannot fight your problem alone. No way. Aquan retired from the ILWU in 1981. She spent the next 28 years as a community advocate and grassroots organizer, leading struggles for health care, affordable housing, human rights, press freedom, death with dignity, and the rights of elders. Her leadership skills and commitment to provide access to education led to an appointment as a regent for the University of Hawaii. People who see the reality and have a passion which is built on compassion can't sit on the sidelines. And so that's when we get down to the strength of personal character, the willingness to keep living that life because the struggle never ends. And there is absolutely no way in which there can be any improvement made in our lives until everyone in this room will go on out and recruit another person so that, in fact, that which promoted the labor movement years ago with the dream of a world with peace, a world without war, will not occur unless we go on out and act to work with one other person and say, Will you work with me? Aquan Makoreth, who uh, a profound, profound influence labor movement
point of what I'm talking about is that women have been in the forefront of every, every movement, every campaign. They just Looking at labor history in two. These are chapters from American and British world labor history. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1942. That was the day that 27 Japanese women working in the Seattle public school system handed in their forced resignation. In the aftermath of the attacks on Pearl Harbor, anti-Japanese hysteria swept the United States, especially the West Coast. 127,000 people of Japanese ancestry were sent to live in 10 internment camps by executive order of President Roosevelt. Many of these U.S. citizens sold their homes and businesses, often for a fraction of their value, before they were forced to move. In Seattle, mothers from Gatewood Elementary School circulated a petition for the removal of Japanese office employees from the schools. The school district pressured the women to resign. Even James Sakamoto, the editor of the Japanese American Courier, encouraged the women to voluntarily leave their jobs. He met with the women at the newspaper's office and told them they should resign before they were fired. Faced with such pressure, the women wrote a resignation letter. They wrote, most of us have received our education in local schools and have been proud of the fact, as we have been proud of our positions as employees. Word of the resignations quickly became headline news in local newspapers. Several protests were held in support of the women. Students at the University of Washington circulated a petition on their behalf. They gathered more than a thousand signatures, declaring the treatment of these office workers undemocratic, intolerant, disrespectful of the rights of American citizens. In 1986, the governor of Washington signed into law an admission of wrongdoing toward these women and payment of reparations for their forced resignation. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1942. That was the day that Sue Cowan Williams filed a lawsuit for equal pay for black teachers in Little Rock, Arkansas. 86 black teachers worked in the city's segregated school system. They were all members of the Little Rock Classroom Teachers Association. In 1941, the teachers formed a salary adjustment committee to look into pay discrimination. What they found there was a wide gap between black and white salaries. The average white elementary school teacher made $526 a year, while the black teacher earned only $321. White high school teachers brought home $856 a year, while black teachers only made $567. Backed with this research, the committee presented a petition to the school board demanding an end to pay discrimination. The board tabled the petition, and that summer passed another round of unequal pay raises. The teachers then approached the NAACP and asked them to handle their case. Thurgood Marshall agreed to take up the lawsuit. Marshall would go on to become the first black U.S. Supreme Court justice. Sue Cowan Williams, the head of the English department at Dunbar High School, was selected as the plaintiff for the case. 
The teachers lost their lawsuit and then won on appeal. But Williams paid a price for her involvement. The next school year, the school district did not renew her contract. She was finally rehired to teach at Dunbar a decade later. But first, the school superintendent called Williams to ask her if she had, quote, learned her lesson. It was a lesson that many workers have learned, that there is often a high personal cost for standing up for justice on the job. Like what you hear? Check out more at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1900. That was the day the members of the Granite Cutters National Union walked out on strike. Their demands were improved wages and the eight-hour day. The leader of the strike was James Duncan, a Scottish granite cutter. Duncan had been elected granite cutter president in 1885. He was one of the founders of the American Federation of Labor. He served on the AFL's executive committee and was a close personal advisor of AFL President Samuel Gompers. Most of the granite cutters were located in cities on the East Coast. The union's first local was founded in Maine in 1877. Like many skilled trade unions of its day, under Duncan's leadership, the organization did not welcome black members. Duncan actively encouraged employers in the South to hire only white granite cutters. The strike of 1900 lasted until mid-May. It ended with a victory for the union, including the eight-hour workday for every local of granite cutters. Because their skills were often in high demand, tradecraft unions were sometimes able to win concessions from employers on matters of wages, hours, and working conditions. These victories by skilled craftsmen helped pave the way for the eight-hour workday to become the standard workday for all working people in the United States. The union also won a minimum wage standard and grievance procedure. In 1905, the Granite Cutters changed their name to the Granite Cutters International Union. During the 20th century, changes in technology changed the labor of granite cutting. Machines reduced the number of workers. In the 1920s, the union had more than 10,000 members. But by the late 1970s, it had dropped to less than 4,000 members. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. This is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1807. That was the day that President Thomas Jefferson signed legislation outlawing the transatlantic slave trade from bringing enslaved Africans to the United States. At the drafting of the U.S. Constitution, the authors had decided to revisit the question of slavery after two decades. During those two decades, the dedicated work of abolitionists put pressure on Congress to act against the barbaric transatlantic trade. Abolitionists in Great Britain also passed a law prohibiting the trade that same year. The U.S. law went into effect on January 1st of 1808. When the law was passed, one million enslaved people lived in the United States. The act, however, did not release them from bondage. In fact, the Western spread of the cotton economy after the Louisiana Purchase ensured that slavery would become even more entrenched. The 1807 Act also did not fully end the transatlantic trade. The law did not include adequate enforcement mechanisms. 
Historians estimate that illegal smugglers brought in as many as a quarter of a million more enslaved Africans to the United States after the prohibition was passed. In 1810, President James Madison spoke to Congress about the problem, saying, It appears that American citizens are instrumental in carrying on a traffic in enslaved Africans, equally in violation of the laws of humanity and in defiance of those of their own country. It would become more than half a century until the question of slave labor in the United States was finally answered by a bloody civil war. From 1525 to 1866, the best estimates of historians is that 12.5 million Africans were brought to the Americas, and nearly 2 million of them died on the Middle Passage. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in 2. On this day in labor history... The year was 1914. That was the day that President Woodrow Wilson signed the Siemens Act into law. The act was in part a response to the tragic sinking of the Titanic. The International Siemens Union was demanding changes to the working conditions at sea. The job of a seaman required long times away from home and tough physical labor. The workers had few rights. The union found a friend in Senator Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin. He championed a new law that set guidelines for basic safety and decent working conditions for those who sailed under the American flag. The act set the work week at a maximum of 56 hours. It established holidays for non-essential crew. The law also improved working conditions by setting standards for cleanliness and safety on board. It abolished the practice of jailing seamen that tried to desert the ship. It required that seamen be paid half of their wages during the voyage. The practice had been to withhold wages to ensure the workers did not desert the ships at port. The new law also required that 16 square feet of space be given to each worker for sleeping. It also mandated that ships should have adequate lifeboats. These last two provisions angered the ship owners because it meant there would be less space on board for cargo. Finally, the law gave seamen the right to organize into unions. Senator LaFollette described the negative reaction of the owners to his law by observing, already the masters of the seas are beginning to threaten dire vengeance. The act was a major victory for the rights of labor on the high seas. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more There's the Rick Smith Show. Your, your daily, weekly, the portion of labor history occurring all over the world. Job, what we're talking about. <clears throat> so we uh, say goodbye to a recent New York at all over the world, migrant children. 
heal of children. Act of a family. It came out in a New York Times expose. There's growing outrage after a New York Times investigation which found that many migrant children who come to the U.S. without their parents here are working 12-hour shifts or more at factories, even though it violates child labor laws. The Times found that, quote, migrant child labor benefits both under-the-table operations and global corporations. In Los Angeles, children stitch Made in America tags into J. Crew shirts. They bake dinner rolls sold at Walmart and Target. They process milk used in Ben and Jerry's ice cream and help debone chicken sold at Whole Foods. As recently as the fall, middle schoolers made Fruit of the Loom socks in Alabama. In Michigan, children make auto parts used by Ford and General Motors. With us now, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times investigative reporter Hannah Dreyer, who broke this story. Hannah, thank you for being with us this morning. You traveled, I know, to several thank states and talked me. with more than 100 child migrant workers. What did you learn? I mean, really, what I uncovered is a migrant child labor scandal in America. Um, kids have been coming across the border in record numbers. More than 300,000 of these kids have come here just since Biden took office. And whereas they used to mostly come and be reunited with their parents, most are now actually going to relatives, distant relatives, sometimes even strangers. And they're ending up in these horrible situations where they're on the hook for rent, for living expenses. A lot of them are in debt to the people that they're living with. And they have to go work the most punishing jobs in the country. So I talked to, like you say, more than 100 kids who are working illegally, jobs they should never have been in. I talked to them outside of meat processing plants, on the top of three-story buildings where they were doing roofing. Um, just things that, you know, you would have thought had disappeared at the turn of the last century. But what I'm finding is this is happening more and more, and all signs are, you know, thousands of children, even more, are going to be in this situation. Hannah, I, I've got to tell you, I mean, if folks can, if you haven't already, please look into that piece that the New York Times that Hannah is responsible for. It is just heartbreaking, terrifying. And, I mean, there's a ledger there by a, a, a small boy who had it on a notepad. You know, he, he wrote down some of, the, some of the bills that these people were charging him. I think he's 12 years old from Guatemala. Uh, you know, he owes just money, and, 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 the, and the person who is responsible for him here threatens him, like saying, you mean nothing to me. Be careful. Hannah, th these are—and you, you talk about 300,000. You just mentioned, I mean, the number of kids. These are kids that are supposed to, I mean, they're not invisible. They, they weren't just, they didn't come through. Uh, they, the government knows they're here. How is this happening? I mean, you mentioned that 300,000 number. We spoke to nearly 100 people who work with these kids directly, the caseworkers who are assigned to these kids. And across the board, they estimated that some 60% of those kids are probably working full-time. So, I mean, the scope is enormous. This is happening in every state. And these are not really undocumented children. They haven't come across the border and never been discovered. They've gone through a federal child welfare system. 
where they are processed through shelters. The government is supposed to release them only to people who will take care of them and make sure that they're not exploited. But unlike the federal foster care system, these kids are placed with adults, and then no one checks up on them again. They're sort of on their own. These adults are not their legal guardians. They're people who are sponsoring them. And one thing that advocates say is it could make a huge amount of difference to just have a social worker who would go, see where the kid actually lives, see if they are enrolled in school, and have some adult in these kids' lives who could help them. This is just terrifying. And, and you know, what you uncovered about, you know, working 12, 14, 16 hours, we had, we showed the picture that you, you had on, on Sunday of the, of the three uh, little boys that, that died. I mean, you know, were injured and died. Uh, one of them fell from a roof in, in construction. Uh, there you see them. Take a look at these faces. And so, and Hannah, so this is, you know, exploitation, but, but who knows what some of these people are subjecting children to, uh, you know, by the thousands in our country. Oh, absolutely. And child labor laws exist for a reason. They were put in place to protect workers' physical safety. And everybody knows that children are much more likely to get injured than adults. That's why they're not allowed legally to be in roofing or processing or manufacturing. But what we found is that kids are getting terribly injured. Their legs are getting ripped off in chicken processing plants. Um, you know, they're shattering their backs, falling from roofs. And like you say, we found at least 12 cases recently in which these kids have been killed. Um, and even when they're not physically injured, they're threatened. Yeah, I talked yeah, to one boy who had been forced to sleep in a basement. I mean, it's just appalling conditions. And these are, as you say, these aren't, these are kids that went through the process. Imagine that. Hannah Dreyer, I thank you so much for, for being with us. I can't thank you enough for, for what you uncovered in this important uh, investigation. Thank you. Thank you. going to be our signal to uh, just a quick comment we think some of these things are over because we passed child labor law but <clears throat> the occasion for people to profit for companies and corporations to profit off the lives of children is still there because we still have a capitalist economy Produce things as cheaply as you can and sell them most you can. And one of the things that we're cheapening out on is the lives of children. Remember, this is the B. Stay tuned for flat black plastic. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work on the menu. And never, never, but never let anyone into your heart. Not a friend of mine. Thanks for listening and
Are you making this up? Tim, who remembers the tongue of the man who has no tongue?
Tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop. Court, or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates have to see you. It's sunshine and even in a drizzle, but not too much. And Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Freezer Reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking public schools. In a tri-level dual world of stand-up comedy, laughter has value and the unexpected laugh is priceless. Who is that live.com? Comedy local shows on sale now. Everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing. Who wants to focus on the genre of stand-up comedy and those that go to whoisthatlive.com for upcoming shows. Join us on a journey into the absurd. Radio Havana, 1109 Valencia at 22nd in San Francisco. The Wyatt
Mikey, that song is called Acid and Fapping. Got it? Imagine that this is part of the total picture. And over here is another part of the total picture. We put these two together, and like a stereo viewer, you get the full picture of the total sound. 